Hey, what's up? How are you? I'm doing all right. Are you in the car? What is it? I, I am definitely in the car, and so if you think the quality is uh, iffy, I am happy to make any adjustments you like. Otherwise, I uh, have a 20-minute drive uh, to my kid's practice here, and then I'm just going to sit in the parking lot and do the rest of it. No, I think it's, it's all right. Yeah, I can hear you anyway, so hopefully li- listeners can hear you, assuming we have to listen. Welcome to episode 2 of the Interceptable Podcast. I gave our guest this week a little bit of a crappy introduction during the conversation, so I wanted to state clearly who it was. Bob Sturm works for The Athletic in Dallas-Fort Worth, and he's on the radio daily, and 1310 is a ticket. He's one of the best guys covering an individual team in the NFL right now. But we're going to start off talking a little bit about stuff that's not about football for the first couple of minutes. But don't worry, then we get into the really detailed stuff about the Cowboys, about draft philosophy, and about a few different quarterbacks across the league, like Teddy Bridgewater and Sam Darnold, because Teddy Bridgewater has just been traded today on the day of recording this podcast, so you guys will enjoy it. You know what, I think it's German. Uh, That's what my uh, grandfather tells me all the time, Um, so I'll take his word for it, but... uh, I think it just is German for storm, like thunderstorm. So, so it's probably uh, storm. That's that. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, storm or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You should get and, one of those uh, things over know, to you. You know the things the Germans have? They put them over little. What, what do they call them? I don't know what you call them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The double, the double dot or whatever that is. I don't even know what it is, but uh, but yeah, okay. But my uh, my my grandfather's all into that stuff. So uh, so he would uh, he would he would definitely have a background and take. Uh, or genealogy all the way to Charlemagne or something like that, right? I was thinking this was a, a Texas thing that I just didn't really know since I've never been to Texas. Um, <laughs> no, well, you're, you're you're missing another 100-degree day, so... Yes, yeah, so you're, uh, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're located in Dallas, right? Yes, sir. Doing 13-10 to ticket and running for the Athletic these days. That's right, that's right. Um, so I, well, actually, this is the, the second episode of this pod, and I finally got an actual name for it. We're going with the Interceptable Podcast, so welcome to the Interceptable Podcast. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is nothing to do with football, it's, and it's nothing to do with insider trading like Michael Kendricks. I don't think anyone wants to talk about that, unless you're an expert, because I'm not. But, um, I believe, I believe you recently became a fan of the Fast and the Furious franchise. Yeah, well, yeah, our our, uh, our silly radio show uh, reviews movies and uh, and rewatches them to see if they're still good. And uh, then it was we we found out that none of us had seen the Fast and the Furious, despite all living through the era of its popularity. So uh, we all said we would watch it and review it on our show. And uh, I have to tell you, I didn't mind it at all. I uh, I realize that's a controversial statement, but uh, I I uh, enjoyed my experience, and uh, we'll probably move on to the sequels here in no time. That's not controversial at all. It's like the most the highest grossing film ever, or something. You're driving right now, though, so maybe try and keep a little bit calm. Which one did you watch? The first one? Yeah, the very first one. So uh, there's there's no sign of the rock yet or anything like that. But uh, I, I we were turned on to it because uh, being a little bit older. Uh, I, I am more of a fan of like Point Break and Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and those movies from the late late 80s, early 90s. And, and somebody 
alerted me on the internet that Point Break and Fast and the Furious are pretty much the exact same script and oh. uh, pretty much the exact same movie. Point Break is the one where like the uh, extreme sports guys become criminals, isn't it? Yeah, but the the plot lines of an FBI agent, uh, you know, kind of falling in love with a girl and uh, kind of being in there with uh, you know the uh, the bad guys, and then there's there's about fifteen or sixteen similarities that uh, were pointed out that uh, suggest that the people that wrote The Fast and the Furious probably got done watching Point Break and saying, what if we set this to cars? So, so it's, it's, at least, it's at least an inter- entertaining case. Point Break with Nas. Just make sure you don't watch the second one. The second one is pretty... Or not the, well, not the second one, the Tokyo Drift. That one's pretty bad. And if you are going to watch it, make sure you watch all the other ones first and then go to Tokyo Drift just because you need something to watch. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate the help on this uh, this project. That's a very odd, no doubt. You're talking to an actual expert here. This is this is what I live for. <laughs> Just nonsense. <laughs> I do have one really very weird, nice. really weird Fast and Furious note though. Paul Walker is like the one thing that or the the guy who first got me into doing like charity stuff. He ran, like people kind of laugh and make a little bit of a joke of him because of the movies he was in. But if you look at that guy's background, he did some before he died. Obviously, he did some major, major charity work, and he, it's, it's it's really it's a, there's a documentary on it that's kind of phenomenal. It's kind of a it's a bit of a change of direction considering you go from him driving these flashy looking cars with lights underneath and stuff like that. I think he's, he he was like helping elephants in Africa and stuff like that. It's 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 a really fascinating thing. It's kind of a sad thing that he died then because of what, all the work he could have done. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've been told I need to see that documentary. Okay, I'll put that on the list for sure. Yeah, and they're probably not one for fun on the radio, though. So, yeah, we're recording this on a Wednesday. Teddy Bridgewater has just been traded. I assume you know that he's been traded. Uh, I know yes, you, you, you focus on the Cowboys mostly, but have you any, any thoughts on that? He went, like, I saw a third-round pick at the start, but now it's saying it's a swap of a third for a sixth. You can probably argue that a sixth-round pick is irrelevant, but this is more kind of like 100 spots in the draft rather than a third-round pick to me. Yeah, you know, for me, it's just it's it's great business by the Jets, obviously, because uh, you know it's a one-year uh, contract that they signed, and uh, and then they 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 fell into Darnold after the fact, and and with that in mind, there's no sense, uh, you know, necessarily holding an asset longer than you uh, you have to if you get the right price. And I am a uh, big fan of the draft. I spend tons and tons of time on it every spring. But I also find that fans probably are getting to a point where we've gone the other direction on our overvaluing now, as opposed to, uh, you know, just a couple decades ago, we would undervalue draft picks. Now, uh, you know, even in Dallas, there are many, many, many fans who uh, would not give up a third for Earl Thomas. And I think that's preposterous. I think there's a lot of value now and maybe even a market inefficiency on flipping draft picks of a certain value, you don't want to get carried away, of course, but of a certain value to get proven veteran talent in that is ready to roll. Uh, now, the Saints' decision is interesting to me, of course, because he is on that one-year deal, and they do have Breeze, but uh, perhaps they're already planning an extension for Teddy Bridgewater as a bridge to their future. I am fascinated that you brought it up by market inefficiency, and I'm going to take this in a bit of a weird place, but Family Guy have this great skit of when Peter Griffin wins a boat, and they say, here's your boat, but instead of having the boat, you could have a mystery box. And Peter's response is, oh my god, a mystery box could be anything. It could be even be a boat. And he, he takes a mystery box because he might get a boat <laughs> instead of taking the boat. And that's what it's like. And I, I can't take all the credit for this because Tom Haberstraw sent it to me once. 
where he said he sent that to me after we were talking about the value of draft picks and fans do genuinely seem to like the unknown rather than the known you said that you you, you hear fans who don't want to trade a third round pick for Earl Thomas I would give you the first yeah. to find the Cowboys you've got a team that's yeah. built to win he, he's that guy is like that guy is Aaron Donald in the secondary in the sense that he changes your whole defense and how you how you have to approach defense and how you have to approach attacking it as an offense well, not only that, but uh, if you want to run the Seattle cover three and you really don't have a premium safety, and uh, now this may change after final cutdowns, but as of today, uh, I'm not positive people know this, but the Cowboys have the youngest roster in the National Football League when you find the ages of everyone at, uh, at training camp and so forth. So you put all those things together, and, and it, it really uh, boils down to the fact that, uh, you know, they they need Earl Thomas. They they have a free safety in Xavier Woods. He's a he's a talented kid, but for crying out loud, free safety and a Seattle cover three. Uh, who can possibly do better than Earl Thomas? And Earl Thomas wants to be a Dallas Cowboy and has said as much a number of times. So there's a, there's a lot going on here to say the least. Yeah, but it's not even just that Earl is a really good player. He's also noted as being someone who's a leader, someone, and I don't just mean that in the rah-rah sense. I mean in the sense of lining up the defense. I know uh, uh, Bobby Wagner in Seattle had the green dot in his helmet and was relaying plays, but you can always see when you watch their film on, on All-22, Earl is the guy get just gesturing to people. Earl is the guy getting guys in the right position and communicating with everyone around him, and he brings a level of intelligence that a guy who's in his first or second year as a starter is not going to have. So to me, the idea of not trading for Earl Thomas, I know we're reaching a point now where you kind of have to make the decision because you're not going to do it during the season. But I think this deal should have been done quite a while ago, especially because the Seahawks aren't in a position where they need him because they're not really going to be contending this year unless it's a complete surprise, it's a complete shock. I can't imagine they're going to be in, uh, competing in really tough a- a- NFC. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I would have done the Earl Thomas uh, deal on draft day. And I would still do it. Uh, I, I think a second would definitely get it done. Uh, and and, and you, you can you can certainly work on the details. But uh, uh, people people here uh, are quick to suggest, and I'm not saying everybody, but a big part of the crowd seem to suggest that they think Earl Thomas will uh, just sign here uh, next April. And in this in this uh, year-to-year league, and given Dak Prescott's current contract, where you're only paying your starting quarterback six hundred thousand in a league that now has a thirty-three or thirty-four million dollar a year quarterback, it, it seems like the time is now to take advantage of Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott on their on their rookie deals. It's kind of especially frustrating when you realize they could have had a, probably could have had Aloka and could have had Eric Reed, but it's. And there are different types of players, and it's also for different reasons. We won't really get into that. I do want to jump back to, just before we move on to kind of talking more exclusively about the Cowboys, you watch the draft, you, you obviously have watched all these players in, in some detail. So any, any of the quarterbacks in particular stand out to you? Uh, quarterbacks uh, in the NFL in general, I, I would say, I, you know, I thought Sam Darnold was the best of the bunch. And, and, and I, you know, I, I have a few reservations about Mayfield. Uh, you know, I think he's a heck of a player. He's saw pretty much every snap in, in his entire college career. I just, I, I am probably old school enough that I get a little bit leery of uh, a, a slight frame on a quarterback. That's also caused me a little bit of a problem looking at Jared Goff uh, because it feels to me like uh, a 210 or 215 pound quarterback 
at a certain point, the collarbones uh, might be a little more frail. I don't have any science to prove that, <laughs> but it just, you know, uh, uh, in both those cases, uh, they, they look a little more frail than my liking. And, and with Mayfield, it seems like he insists on, on taking some pretty massive hits to make plays, which, which uh, again, I, I find awesome and brave and courageous, but I also find it's like the opposite of Peyton and Eli Manning, who have uh, had such, you know, pretty much flawless NFL careers from a health standpoint because they took a minimum of hits. They understood that, uh, you know, getting the ball out quickly, maybe Tom Brady as well, is the best way to elongate a career. So uh, I, I'm a big believer in Darnold. Uh, then Mayfield and Rosen were the next tier, and then uh, Jackson and and then Allen would have been the, the way I had the five uh, stacked, uh, you know, at draft when the draft happened. So I, I like that you mentioned that about protecting yourself and the kind of the mindset. Do you think Mayfield has that similar uh, Carson Wentz thing where? If you remember the Panthers-Eagles game last year, Carson Wentz, I think there was a broken play and he turned and he scrambled and Thomas Davis was in front of him and he tried to run through Thomas Davis, who is obviously yeah. a massive he, linebacker. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think a lot of that did work in college. And I think, uh, you know, plays in the open field uh, on your feet for a quarterback make all the sense in the world in college. And some of them can pull it off for a little while in the, in the National Football League. But I really believe that for a quarterback to, uh, to, to have a long and, and fruitful career in the National Football League, they have to pick their spots. And, uh, you know, the famous video of John Elway, you know, doing the helicopter in Super Bowl 32, I think it was, that's, that's an awesome, awesome piece of film. But he was not doing that every Sunday on the way to the Super Bowl. So there is a time and place for everything. But if you are just wired to never give up on a play, and I think Baker Mayfield has a little Brett Favre in him like that. Um, I just I, I get a little worried that the human body can sustain Fletcher Cox falling on you uh, every week, uh, you know, for, for, for 10, 15 years. I, I, I just, I, I, you know, and maybe it's because I watched Tony Romo's career uh, and, and, and the, as great as he was, uh, you know, his, his body eventually betrayed him, and he was a bit of a smaller quarterback as well, although at the end his weight was uh, – it did go up, and I think that was by design to protect him. But but I just – I you know, like I said, I can't prove it scientifically, but it feels like a 235-pound quarterback is more durable in general than a 215-pound quarterback, and I'm just going to stick with that until somebody can <laughs> show me proof otherwise. Well, I think uh, if you're a little bit younger and you don't remember John Elway, you will remember that play as the Willie Beeman play from any given Sunday. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can hear it. I don't know if you can hear it, but there's like a military helicopter going above my house right now, so maybe you're not picking me up. Um, I actually, I want to do on stay on Mayfield for a little bit though, because you talk about his size and how slender he is. My kind of issue with him coming out wasn't necessarily how slender he was or anything like that. He wasn't the tallest in terms of seeing receivers through his offensive lineman in the pocket, which isn't something I get hung up on if you play a certain style. So I was always, early in his career at least, now I'm lower on him because I don't think he's played as well in recent years, but I was always higher on Russell Wilson earlier in his career than the 
casual general fan I'm not sure what you thought of him but just comparing myself to the average person because I, I always appreciated his ability to create big plays and to still be efficient and he did that by having a great arm and having great deep accuracy and also being athletic enough to escape and extend plays with his feet not just as a runner but also outside of the pocket and stuff like that and I felt like that combination same thing with Tyrod Taylor that combination of being able to look after the ball being able to create big plays was enough for him to be a good quarterback and for me, if you're someone like Mayfield, unless you're going to be Drew Brees, who is just an exception, who's phenomenal at pretty much everything when it comes to technical ability and awareness, you have to be a little bit more like Russell Wilson in terms of your skill set when you're that size. And I didn't really see that from him in college. I know there, there's the idea that he has a big arm and you can measure it with the gun or whatever, but when he's throwing the ball to me, it loops a lot and it feels an awful lot like he's stressing the deep throw. So I've, I actually thought in college his best deep passing or his best probably his best overall passing in terms of placement and precision was the back shoulder throw down, down the sidelines. I didn't really see him hitting posts or hitting just straight down the sideline leading guys to space as much. And I wonder if he's going to be able to, or if he's going to have more limitations with bigger NFL-sized offensive linemen in front of him that he can't overcome with big plays as often in the NFL. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. And, and I don't know necessarily how to... Um, rationalize even ball velocity. And I know those figures coming out of the combine were really interesting to me. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, uh, you know, once you see the readings on Mayfield and he, and, you know, the fact that he was up at 60 miles an hour, um, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, it, it, you know, obviously a radar gun is an exact science, but it's an inexact science in the sense of we don't quite know what to do with quarterback velocity, except to say, well, he clearly can throw it harder than I thought he could. Uh, from that standpoint, I'm, 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 I'm quite curious with, uh, you know, where his career does take him from that standpoint, because I do think that's a very interesting development with regards to, you know, what exactly uh, the, you know, his, where exactly that factors in with his ability, because I'll be honest, I had reservations about his arm strength as well. And then in watching even the Eagles game last week, I, I thought he made some significant, strong NFL throws that I wasn't sure he was capable of while wearing an Oklahoma uniform, so it's kind of weird like that. Yeah, I haven't watched that game in depth yet, so there might be a couple of ones that stand out. My concern is that he's putting the ball into tighter windows and they'll just close a little bit quicker, so his decision-making will have to be better. Like I think it's a it's an issue Case Keenum has. I'm not saying he has Case Keenum's arm, because Case Keenum's arm is, is clearly weaker than Mayfield's. But in, in terms of the... In terms of the gun, I, my problem is I don't know how that gun works. Is this part of the combine or is it some guy sitting in the crowd? Because if it's part of the combine and they've got each quarterback doing exactly the same throw, doing a very specific type of throw to test their velocity, yeah, maybe it has some value. But if it's one guy sitting in the crowd checking each throws and the quarterback doesn't know that he's being tested to go to his very limit with his arm strength, what value is there? And for me, the way I generally try and gauge arm strength, it's, it's less about like how far you control or how hard you control if you control outside the numbers from the far hash in the nfl you and do it accurately yeah. and do it consistently you're, you're not going to have many issues like that's one of the big knocks i have on kirk cousins it's one of the big positives i have on cam newton cam newton can be can be a second late on a read and he can beat the defensive back there from the far hash whereas kirk cousins passes generally fall at the receiver's feet when he's got to make that throw 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And then Lamar Jackson is on the uh, total other end of the spectrum because I don't think, uh, you know, the gun had him even at 50 miles an hour. I think it was 49, which I think was the very lowest range. And, you know, obviously if you watch Lamar Jackson at the uh, university level, yeah. uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, he, 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 he made some very impressive throws along the way and put him up in that first round range. So I, you know, I, I realize. Uh, I, I think it's an R lads. I think our lads does it with the gun and I assume they're down at field level. But like I said, it, you know, now we're looking at decades and decades of uh, football analysis and we're introducing, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a new statistic to it, a new metric, which is just, just playing miles per hour as if they're a baseball pitcher. And we're trying to say, okay, well this, this, uh, you know, makes, makes this possible. And, and as you say, so often it's the timing, it's the anticipation, and it's the uh, knowledge of a defense that, that allows a quarterback to uh, find success. All right, I promise you we are going to move on to your Cowboys and, and your, uh, your home team, your home topic, I guess. But before we move on from the draft, sure. is there anyone, like, was there anyone from this class who you particularly loved or you're particularly low on who went really high or someone you just find interesting, just anyone at all? If you, even if you don't have one, we can just move on. But if you have someone off the top of your head who stood out to you, is there anyone you mean uh just regardless of position yeah, or any, what are you anything. saying absolutely anything. well i mean you know as, as when i look back at the draft you know the biggest question is twofold and they're both near the top and i think they're both fascinating as somebody who really loves this stuff and that is the giants decision at number two uh knowing full well that if they passed on sam darnold not only would they uh, perhaps need their franchise quarterback next season, but they would also uh, have to look at Sam Darnold in their stadium for the balance mm -hmm. of his career. I thought that was an amazingly pivotal decision that it's possible we're going to be talking about that for years and years to come, especially because they did something that a lot of uh, us draft nerds uh, think is a very dangerous thing to do, which is to put all their eggs in a running back's basket. And, 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 and I – Really am impressed with Saquon Barkley. Uh, obviously, uh, anyone who studies the uh, draft knows that he might be the best running back prospect in a long, long time. Although, you know, when you compare him to Ezekiel Elliott or you compare him to Todd Gurley, uh, you realize that all three of them uh, might be capable of similar NFL feats. So it's not like, uh, you know, he reinvented the position or anything along those lines. So you get to that, you get to uh, really just the raw – career duration of the two positions and just the fact that when we look at the top five quarterbacks in the NFL right now uh, how many of them are 35 years old or older and, and and you know that that's preposterous when you discuss running back and so if I am running a franchise or a front office uh, quantifying running back versus quarterback is an amazingly difficult thing to do but I will fall back on the fact that that uh, you know for me a quarterback is a three contract guy and a running back is a one contract and then probably franchise levy on bell a couple times and then let him go. And so, you know, that's probably my be all end all tiebreaker. And that's why I wanted Dallas to take Jalen Ramsey over uh, Ezekiel Elliott uh, a couple drafts ago, even though Elliott aside from the suspension is probably, uh, you know, reached his ceiling as well as a running back possibly could in two years. And then the second draft uh, discussion I have is also in the top five, 
and I think it's already starting to uh, kind of play out like I thought a little bit, but it's it's way, way too early. Of course, we haven't even got to week one of the rookie season, but I there's no way I'm taking Denzel Ward over Bradley Chubb. Uh, I am a, I am a, you know, the uh, decision the Browns had at number four uh, was to, to, to take the Ohio State cornerback, who I believe is about 5'10", about 180, 185. And uh, Bradley Chubb, I think, could be that, that, uh, that bookend to, uh, to Miles Garrett moving forward. And so for me, you know, the, the, the pass rusher versus the corner discussion is an interesting one. But then we're talking the corner happens to be undersized. And we saw last Thursday night, not to keep referencing the same preseason game, but we saw Denzel Ward try to tackle Zach Ertz, and it looks like it, uh, it injured him. And I would suggest to you that 180-pound cornerbacks tackling 260-pound tight ends is probably really bad for their health. <laughs> you don't like small guys, in other words. That's where that's we're at 20 minutes into this pod. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, it's, it's the old uh, little car versus big car in a collision. Uh, you know, there are exceptions to every rule. But, yes, a massive, massive part of football is, uh, is uh, you know, the, the, the old cliche that the most important ability for a football player is durability. And so, yes, uh, a ton of what I believe about this sport is that uh, you have to be able to uh, get back up and do it for 16 Sundays in a row. Bob wants a, a monster truck sponsorship, not a, a smart car sponsorship. <laughs> um, I, let, let's stay here for a second. I, I kind of agree with you on the pass rusher on Chubb over, uh, over Denzel Ward. So there's nothing really there to talk about. But on the first one, I'm probably in the minority in that I have no issue with them taking Saquon Barkley. So everything you said is right. If you get a quarterback, you've got twenty years. You've got you've got a guy. If if he's good, if he's bad, you get fired. But if if he's a good quarterback, you might get twenty years, and it might be great. And I really like Darnold. I think Darnold's going to be a really good player. But if you're the GM or head coach, you have probably two years guaranteed on as in that position. If you don't have any success, you're getting fired after two years. If you do have success, you're going to be there for sure four years, maybe five years. So you don't really have any reason to look for the second and third contract on the quarterback at this point. You really need to focus on improving your team right now. The The amount of head coach changes, I know you're in Dallas, so it's a little bit different because Jason Garrett's been there since the turn of the century or whatever it is. But, <laughs> yes, yes. but, but Jason, Jason Garrett's the exception. Most of these guys are win now or get fired. And then you have something like in Cleveland where I know Hugh Jackson is still there, but Sashi got fired when the idea was to be patient and wait, and that just never happened. I just don't think anyone in the NFL does that. The other part of this, to me, if you pair, if you take Saquon Barkley and as a running back and you put him in a bad offense that has no other talent, yeah, he's going to have minimal impact. If you put him with Pat Shermer and you have Odell Beckham on the outside and you've got other good players around him as well, you're going to be able to maximize his impact. And I have this thing with the Rams offense last year where people talk about Jared Goff and his value and how much he's worth and then Todd Gurley gets paid. I think Todd Gurley is the harder part of that offense to... to, to uh, to, to change over to, to, to replicate so to me Todd Gurley is more important to the Rams success than Jared Goff is and I know that might be controversial just because Goff is the quarterback but I don't feel like the quarterback in that offense was asked to do a whole amount that like like a, a replacement level guy like say Andy Dalton could do so if you're the Giants and you're thinking we feel like Eli Manning has one two three years left in him maybe they're wrong maybe they're right but maybe if they have a rational reason to believe that I have no issue with them 
adding Saquon Barkley next to Ola Beckham and trying to make that job for Manning as easy as possible uh, because this is a team that was in the playoffs two years ago it's not like they're in a full-on rebuild yeah. everyone was just hurt last year there's there's no doubt and what it really is is and I, I didn't mention this as I stated my case but it you know as, as, as you just said it's a referendum on Eli Manning is what it is because yeah. Uh, if if somebody uh, legitimately thinks that Eli Manning still has quality years of football, uh, then then I suppose it uh, dramatically alters the decision making process. For me, I kind of think Eli Manning has been a substandard quarterback uh, for 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 several years now, and uh, you know I, I I I really sense that his best days are well behind him. And so from that standpoint, I start to think at a certain age, at a certain level of performance, um, we're going to have to start worrying about quarterback again. I believe Ben McAdoo, for all his faults, definitely saw that train was, uh, was, was headed his direction, that he had to think about the next quarterback. And clearly ownership disagreed with him. And, uh, you know, where the front office was, well, the front office got replaced. So I, I don't know where Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer necessarily sit on the on the Eli Manning future, although I believe they probably uh, had to agree to whatever ownership felt, or they probably wouldn't have been hired in the first place. So the Giants have gone all in that Eli Manning has two or three or four seasons of uh, elite quarterback play ahead of him, I suppose. Otherwise, they probably don't make this decision because the Giants don't pick in the top two very often. And, and usually when you're up there, you better get your quarterback if there's one available. And, and so it seemed like this was a quarter. This is a great year to pick in the top five. If you needed a quarterback, I thought the giants did. They clearly disagree with me. Maybe Davis Webb is the next Joe Montana. Who knows? That's, that's, that's what they're banking on. Um, all right, let's, let's move. I feel like I've gone into this podcast quite a bit and there's going to be Cowboys fans who have tuned in and they're going to be really mad that we're talking about the giants for 10 minutes. <laughs> so let's, let's actually get to the Cowboys and let's stay with the rookies. Yes, though. The one of the most fascinating moves this offseason to me, and this probably tells you how much of a nerd I am. The most fascinating move was Connor Williams being drafted to to start at left guard for the Cowboys. The reason this, okay, so I didn't know a huge amount about Connor Williams coming out, so this is an indictment on him as a player. I've watched him in the preseason. I don't think he stood up positively. Their pass protection looks a bit little too iffy for me. You have a better idea of that than I will. But from a team building perspective. I have Lyle Collins there, who is playing right right tackle for me right now, and he has struggled at right tackle. Let's 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 no let let's be nice to him and let's say he's been an average starting right tackle. But at left guard, he was a really really good player. So to me, the best case scenario here, you've got Lyle Collins, who isn't an all pro at right tackle, who isn't a pro bowler at right tackle, and you've got a rookie starting at left guard, who you're high on, but is probably going to take some time to adjust and probably won't be as good as Lyle Collins would be at left guard. I thought the easiest move of this offseason, the simplest move of this offseason was for the Cowboys to go and try and find a right tackle. It doesn't have to be a great right tackle, but someone who can let you move Collins back into left guard. So that means at the very worst, at the very worst situation there, you've got Tyron Smith, an all-pro, Lyle Collins, a potential all-pro. You've got Travis Frederick before he got hurt, an all-pro at centre. You've got Zach Martin at right guard, an all-pro, and then you've got some guy at right tackle you can give help to. So maybe you will have a better idea of this. Was this a case of they loved Connor Williams, or was this a case of Lyle, they love at right tackle, or was it, we don't think we can find a right tackle, which admittedly right tackles are hard to find. Yeah, yeah, there's there, no, there's, there's a lot of layers of, uh, of, of discussion on that front, uh, partly because uh, you have the added uh, element of, of think they 
seem to believe that last year left guard cost them quite a bit of a uh, of, uh, problem and chaos, and, and I disagree with that overall. Jonathan Cooper played left guard for them for most of the year uh, once they, they got Chaz Green off the field, which is always a good idea. And and I thought Jonathan Cooper was was fine. Now he wasn't Zach Martin, uh, but uh, but you know I, I I my thought is if you have three All Pro offensive linemen, you should be able to fill the other two with uh, reasonable levels of re, you know replacement level players. I mean you should not need to spend five first round picks to make an offensive line. Uh, the the benefit of having All Pro talents is they make everyone around them better. Okay, fine. Let's put a left guard between them. That is a you know a, a you know a, a, a reserve in some situations. And maybe you know I, I thought Jonathan Cooper was fine. They didn't even try to re-sign him. San Francisco, I think, offered him four million guaranteed, and now he's a, he's a Forty Nine er. So uh, you have that to consider. So so th- there is the original thing is they went into the off season thinking they really needed to get a right guard or uh, excuse me a left guard. So much so that it appears uh, they were considering one in round one. Uh, and, and whether that would have been Isaiah Wynn or whether that would have been Will Hernandez or some of these other offensive linemen, uh, we don't know because they took Leighton Vanderush. But uh, the, the fact is uh, there was buzz that they might uh, go take yet another first-round offensive lineman, and uh, they obviously opted off that. Now, uh, to Connor Williams versus uh, Lyle Collins, who should be playing uh, you know, guard and who should be playing tackle, uh, there's no question Connor Williams looks far more equipped out on the edge, although he was a left tackle at Texas, and, and uh, you know I think he did have some issues out there with his feet. I thought Lyle Collins was better than people uh, suggest from last year. He got abused early by Von Miller, and Ryan Kerrigan gives him fits. But really, for the most part, for most of the season, Lyle Collins was fine for a first-year right tackle, and, and I would suggest that, being fine in his first year at right tackle was about the same level of play they were getting from Doug Free the year before. Uh, when Doug Free retired after 2016, that sent everybody into a little bit of a panic, and uh, there was some concern about Lyle Collins. But remember, he was a left tackle at LSU. They guard for the Cowboys. Uh, then they moved different position i thought it was reasonable to say it would take a year or so for him to get the mechanics down and i think he's probably there right now he's never going to be a right-handed version of tyron smith but i think you can you can do fine with lyle collins uh you know let's let's say he's the 16th best right tackle in football or something right in the middle of the league i don't think there's any problem with that now the connor williams thing is He's just undersized. He was undersized for a uh, tackle, and he's undersized for a guard by a mile because, obviously, you know, you're up against those three techniques. And, and once again, I'm going to uh, repeat the name of Fletcher Cox. It's just insanity to ask you to, in college, uh, be blocking on the edge against 240-pound guys from Kansas or Oklahoma State, and then uh, your, your first week in the NFL – there's Damon Harrison or uh, Fletcher Cox across from you, and these guys weigh 310, and, and they are the strongest men on the planet. So uh, it's it's going to take Connor Williams, uh, you know, probably a couple years to get to that level of strength that he's going to need to be good in, inside. So if your claim is if I move these guys around, I can make each position a little bit more fortified, I would agree with you that Connor Williams is probably a better tackle right now and there's no question Lyle Collins is probably a better guard right now, but I, I, I think this is their plan to let 
Collins continue his education at right tackle, not give up all that progress, and uh, and just let Connor try to be the weak link, which of course gets a little bit weaker if you don't have Travis Frederick next to him for half or even all of the year. Well, I, I think pretty much any right tackle in the league is going to struggle with Ryan Kerrigan and Von Miller, so that's a fair, a very fair point. Well, but sticking with Williams is the so the, what I've seen from the preseason with him is. He struggled in pass protection. Obviously, the size thing is an issue there. People have kind of bullied him a little bit. And he, he's blown his uh, positioning once or twice as well, I've noticed. It's something I've noticed too many times for a short spell, for a, a short sample, small sample. But it's still the preseason and he's a rookie, so you're not going to kill him for that. But the positives from him that I've seen, he looks like he's going to be a versatile run blocker. And I imagine that's what attracted them to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a tremendous athlete. And and uh, he is, is one of these uh, young men who... Uh, kind of look like they might be a tight end, and and we're used to tight end bodies going to tackle. We're not always used to them going to guard, but I think that's probably an arm length thing. And the Cowboys are pretty particular about what they look for in their linemen. Uh, they definitely uh, have a arm length for tackle and an arm length for guard, uh, but they also want guys with great feet so they can get them out in space. And, and Connor Williams is a tremendous athlete, and so it's 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 purely a strength thing. And uh, we'll see if they can get him in that weight room and get him to keep his weight up because, um, you know, that's, that's really going to be the key. I think, you know, when you look at uh, several of, of their young players, development is a real, uh, you know, a key aspect of where they're trying to go so that they draft a guy who's at a certain level. But by year three, he's, he's, he's at an even higher level that uh, development has brought on. I know every team tries to do that, but it seems like the Cowboys have – have really said we want to have a homegrown roster, uh, almost like what Ted Thompson did for so many years in Green Bay, is we, we don't want to acquire people from other organizations. We want to get them at 22 and, and, and then know them, uh, you know, as well as you can know them when it's time to sign them to a big contract at age 26, like, you know, the DeMarcus Lawrence model, the Zach Martin model. They, they want to grow their own, if you will, and uh, they, that's why – you know, even the idea of trading for Earl Thomas uh, makes some people feel like they're deviating from their plan. But I just think that's smart. I think I think you need to use every avenue to acquire talent in this league. Well, that's the negative of that approach, and that was a big issue with Ted Tom- with Ted Thompson Ted Thompson over the years in Green Bay because he he would turn yeah. down opportunities to improve a roster that was always one or two free agents away. You look at the Broncos and the Seahawks went out and got big guys and added to their teams while the Packers kind of got a little bit worse because they were waiting on guys to develop who never developed. So you, you mentioned it there, Travis Frederick. We, it's, it's, I don't know how much you know about it, but it, it's, I kind of don't really know anything about it because it's not like, a, hey, he's got an ACL injury. He's, he hasn't got a hamstring injury. It's got this disease or whatever it is that he's got. So like, how long, I, I'm not going to ask you to guess how long he's going to be out unless you have insider information there. That's not something you can do. But how much of an impact do you feel like his loss is going to have on the offensive line because he's a he's a guy who is celebrated for his ability to execute difficult blocks on those zone run plays that Zeke excels on, and it's those reach blocks where he has the quickness to get to move from one side of the, of the defender to another and still close him off, and he's an integral part of those running lanes. Like, is Joel Looney going to be able to repl- replicate any of that? That's a great question. I you know what of all the offensive line positions, I think Joel Looney. Uh, gives the Cowboys the best chance to replicate reasonable offensive line play. Like, for instance, going back to last year in Chaz Green and, and uh, Byron Bell out there at tackle. <laughs> uh, they, they were absolutely 
yeah, they were screwed uh, if they lost the tackle, and they did, and they had no idea what to do about it. Uh, Joe Looney is reasonable enough that you would say you know, you'd like to think there will be games where you won't know the difference. Uh, that might be pie in the sky uh, because Travis Frederick is very good, but I think what Travis Frederick often gives you is, uh, you know, even his uh, intelligence ability at that center position, which we, we hear uh, every every week in this league, identifying protections, setting them up, and, and uh, you know, you have that, and then you have the mechanics, as you said, of, of getting those reach blocks and, and, and you're just basically using your body uh, perfectly as as Frederick does to, to help uh, that, that zone blocking scheme, uh, you know, really – find a crack in the defense and, and get the running back into space. So um, I think Looney can handle a lot of the physical things. I'm curious how he handles, you know, setting the protection and things like that, because if you're going to attack the Cowboys this year, uh, it seems like a pretty obvious recipe. It seems like you want to make uh, the Cowboys pass you out of a loaded box. And what that of course is going to mean is you're going to have a, a heavily populated uh, tackle box with with linebackers and an extra safety down there. And, and what that, of course, leads to is in passing situations, you can send a lot of exotic pressures out of that, which which doesn't necessarily test the physicality of pass protection, but really the mental acuity of everybody knowing who it is they're supposed to be picking up. So I think that's going to be the real issue. Uh, if you see teams attack even Zach Martin over the years, it's not, it's almost never the amount of times that Zach Martin is beat physically. But when they start running twists and stunts and then, you know, zone dogs and, and basically uh, showing, hey, we're coming from this direction, but then they drop out and you send them from other directions, that's how you attack the Cowboys' front. Uh, you do it, of course, with numbers, but you do it with deception. And, and I think Frederick would often hold things together, but at the same time, um, you know, Losing him might lose some of that organization that, that really makes the pass protection uh, component so important. This is a little bit of, a bit of a tangent off of what you're just talking about, but what you're saying there is why I love disguised four-man blitzes. Not, oh, sorry, that's a, bad, that's, a bad, that's a bad term. What I want to say is disguised four-man pass rushes because they're not blitzes. You're not sending a fifth. You're not yeah. asking your cornerback to cover a difficult assignment in space. What it generally needs is athletic linebackers or an athletic defensive end who can go from one spot that's disadvantageous to get to another really quickly and if you can create that level of confusion in the offensive line it's a lot easier to get to the quarterback and when you can do it with a four-man pass rush you still keep all your bodies back in the secondary so you're still able to do different coverages you're still able to crowd the field a little bit more rather than just the quarterback recognizes it gets the ball out to his running back in space in the flat and he runs for 20 yards no, there's no question, and and you know especially when you can uh, with the, with the bunch uh, formations and the tighter splits, you, you often see uh, you know uh, slack corners and 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 strong safeties uh, you know adding to that, and and that is where you know obviously things happen, and and on top of that, the Cowboys at least in the past have liked to go empty. They like to put Ezekiel yeah. Elliott out as a slot as a slot receiver or a Rod Smith even. And, and now Dak is there by himself, and, and often he has to account for the free man. And uh, that's, you know, that, that is a very, very risky proposition for a quarterback who, uh, you know, is not necessarily looking at the entire field all the time. Um, and that, you know, so, so that's the chess match. I think the Cowboys are, you know, I, I, 
their game plan seems too obvious this year for me, and I'm really curious how Scott Linehan and Jason Garrett are going to evolve if, if in fact, they do. Uh, if, you, if, if people follow my, my thoughts on this team, I have uh, certainly been the type of guy who would have been fine with, uh, with trying a new coaching staff uh, on several other different occasions, but but last November was uh, was easily my last straw. So uh, the Cowboys do like to talk about a lot of coaching changes from last year, and they have changed a lot of positional coaches. But they did not change either coordinator, and they certainly didn't change Jason Garrett. And so to expect a radically different offensive uh, game plan or scheme uh, seems a little bit uh, pie in the sky to me. But I'm, I'm obviously, you know, willing and, and eager to, to see what they have under wraps because they're, they're, they're obviously keeping it pretty vanilla here in the preseason. But the, the formula of pound Zeke, pound Zeke, and uh, just hope that you can get behind this offensive line and just roll him down the field, I just I, – I'm very skeptical on whether that works in the National Football League very often. A run-first team – uh, if they want to use the deception that like Tavon Austin might be able to provide, and, and obviously there's a number of ways to ghost players and to, to trick the eyes of defenders, but if you're just going to ground and pound out of 12 personnel right at the heart of these NFL defenses, usually that leaves you in third and long, and uh, that will not be the recipe for a big year from the offense, in my opinion. Yeah, the positional coaches didn't leave the backup left tackle alone for six sacks last year. So you can fire those guys if you want, but it's the play callers who've been messing the Cowboys up in the last... Like it, I say the last couple of years, not rather than just last year, and people kind of uh, kind of look at that funny, but like their play calling wasn't good the year before. Everything was just working because the offensive line was so dominant because Zeke was, was, fully, was, was always there and fully explosive, and the receiving core hadn't declined as much with Jason Witten as well. But let's... Actually, you, you because you mentioned twelve personnel, the tight end position there. Like, so we all we're all just used to it being Jason Witten, and obviously now Jason Witten is gone. And the funny thing about Jason Witten being gone is probably eight years ago they had the backup plan of Michael or Martellus Bennett behind him, and now when he's yep. actually when he's actually gone, it doesn't really feel like there's an obvious option there. Maybe they have an ob- uh, an obvious guy at the top of the depth chart. But it's not someone who nationally you're going to recognize and say, oh, yeah, he's a good tight end. He's a good player. So can you so you've got Jeff Swain, Swain, you've got Blake Jarwin, you've got Rico Gallers, who is the guy you hear the most about from fans. You've got Dalton Schultz and you've got David Wells. So can you figure out that jigsaw for me and explain it and lay out what you think (laughs) is going to happen? Well, well, what I think is going to happen is they're going to take a tight end very high in next year's draft. <laughs> uh, not, to, not to spoil uh, my answer here, but uh, but that you know, honestly, looking at uh, this group of tight ends, uh, they 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 obviously feel good about um, you know some of the futures of these guys. So going back to even the Connor Williams answer, uh, I think there's a lot of that with Dalton Schultz, the uh, 22 year old from Stanford. He's a, uh, he's a very willing blocker. He runs pretty good pass routes, but, you know, again, he may not weigh 250 pounds. So uh, there's another guy they just need to get on the NFL weight program. They think he can be a dual threat tight end, but uh, obviously to compare him to Jason Witten is laughable uh, since I don't think he ever got to 250 yards in any of his seasons at Stanford. So uh, Dalton Schultz, to me, and I could be wrong on this, but to me, He's kind of a special teams guy this year, and uh, they might have specific packages for him, but I would not expect a whole lot. So that leaves, uh, you know, Jeff Swaim, who is clearly 
a guy they're comfortable with in blocking situations uh, and also those little bootlegs and waggles and, 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 you know, just sort of the rollouts that where they like to get Dak. Usually the first play of every drive feels like it's a play-action bootleg with a, with a tight end low and a tight end high and uh, just give, you know, give him an easy completion to start each series. Um, you know, if I was a defensive coordinator facing the Cowboys, I'd be sitting on that every single first and 10, uh, at least to, to start a drive. But Swaim is decent in that. He's just never going to run any sort of vertical pass route whatsoever. So now you're down to the two vertical uh, threats uh, at tight end, and they're both, in my opinion, long shots. Uh, Blake Jarwin was an Oklahoma State kid who was undrafted. And last year, Philadelphia came calling for him in, I think, week six or week seven, offered him a roster spot off the Cowboys practice squad. And so the Cowboys said, well, we will match the roster spot because we don't want to lose you. And he elected to stay with the Cowboys. And I think that was at a time where the Eagles were going through some injury problems at tight end. So maybe he uh, threw away a chance at a Super Bowl ring. But, uh, hey, whatever. Uh, But he's still here, and and the Cowboys think that he can trouble – uh, defensive backs down the field with a little bit of verticality. They have tried to run some offense for him in this uh, preseason, and so far it has left uh, everyone wanting just a little bit with what that has developed into. And as far as being a blocker, uh, he's uh, he's way closer to a wide receiver than he is to a tight end. So that leaves the most mentioned uh, player in the NFL who's never taken a snap in uh, in two seasons in the NFL, and that's uh, the basketball star Rico Gathers, uh, who I believe is the all-time leading rebounder at Baylor. Um, so that, you know, it, it obviously says he's an athlete, but he had not played football since, I believe, the seventh or eighth grade. And, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's been two seasons. This is now his third. And uh, there's yeah, at times if you talk to people inside the Cowboys organization, you get a bit of an eye roll about how well he knows the playbook and about how well uh, he can handle the responsibilities of trust, even on special teams. He's, he's never on teams. And so my overall feeling is he's a real candidate probably to not make the team uh, this year, even though he's probably the closest thing they have to a real threat as a pass catching tight end. Uh, the Cowboys need guys who are either starters or special teams contributors. And so I'm just taking their cue in preseason, I believe he's had two snaps late in the fourth quarter on punt coverage, but that is it. And these other tight ends are all playing, you know, 10, 15 snaps a game on special teams. So they add value because they're not heavy snap guys. So, you know, that's how you build a 46-man game day roster or a 53-man roster overall is you either you're a key, key contributor or you are helping the special teams coach out. Otherwise, you know, maybe a third quarterback or maybe a veteran backup running back. There's not many guys like that in the NFL that don't do either of those things. So I, I realize everyone loves talking about Rico Gathers and they see young Antonio Gates, but I would just caution the optimism because, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen it yet, you know. And so um, it, we're, we're 28 months down the road of him being drafted by the Cowboys back in the 2016 draft. And, and uh, I've gone from uh, really optimistic to uh, a bit pessimistic here over the last year or so. I don't think anyone should be called young Antonio Gates unless we put Antonio Gates in a time machine and bring him <laughs> back. People, do people not realize how much well, of a, a standard that is? Yeah, well, it's ridiculous. And also uh, Antonio Gates, uh, you know, far more athletic than Rico Gathers. Uh, people 
see a basketball player and say, well, he's clearly the most athletic of the four. When in reality, uh, based on his throw day numbers, I believe he had the worst vertical of the four and the worst 40 time of the four and the worst 10-second split of the four. So he is athletic, but let's not get carried away with, uh, you know, he's uh, the most athletic tight end that anybody's ever seen. And the other thing about Antonio Gates was that he had this unbelievable ability to manipulate defenders where he would just lean on them with his body and create that little bit of space. So he was a phenomenal route runner. He wasn't this guy who just hit the deep ball and caught the ball in the flat or stuff like that, or it was just a little bit of a blocker. He became this well-rounded, phenomenal tight end who could run routes with Witten. Like, I know it's probably sacrilege to say it to a Dallas guy, but he could run routes as well as Witten. He just didn't get that much credit of it for, uh, from because he played in San Diego, I guess, is probably a big issue. The... That's actually a timely discussion about Rico Gathers, though, because I am in the process of writing an article right now about uh, Jimmy Graham, and this is kind of probably going to infuriate you if you're a Rico Gathers fan listening, but in Jimmy Graham, he was this guy in New Orleans who was a phenomenal athlete, obviously a better athlete than Gathers, who played basketball, but the thing about him playing basketball, and it's become this huge cliche that everyone rolls their eyes at this point because it's said by everyone, it's one of those interesting facts that everyone already knows, so it's not interesting at all. But because he played basketball, the only thing he really did in New Orleans was run deep and high point the ball, high point the ball downfield. So then when Seattle signed him and brought him in, he ended up becoming this possession receiver who was like catching the ball in the flat and working over the middle against linebackers and trying to catch the ball while safeties were blowing him up. And he never did that in New Orleans, but he ended up in Seattle in this role where he got one accurate deep pass last year and he had most of his, uh, uh, his most of his passes come within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. So Seattle took this guy who was phenomenal at very specific things and asked him to do things that he couldn't do, got awful production and awful results and never kind of realized the coaching staff never sat there and went, hey, we're using him wrong. They just kept doing the same thing over and over again. And that's probably yeah. a big part of the Rico Gathers thing where if you're a Dallas Cowboys tight end, you've got to be able to block and you've got to be able to line up in line because they're going to want to run the ball all the time. So Gathers, again, just to add more fury against his coaching staff, Gathers probably doesn't fit their offense. Yeah, I, I, you know what? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right because this is a team that, uh, you know, they, they realize that they're going to face you know, loaded boxes, and so they're going to, uh, and obviously some of this is self-fulfilling, but if you come out in 13 personnel, of course the box is going to be loaded or 12 yeah. personnel, but the Cowboys are a team that realize they have five really nice offensive linemen, but if uh, you got eight in the box, eight versus five is not a good matchup, so they're going to, you know, they, 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 they employ their tight ends as essentially uh, offensive linemen at times. If I was trying to find a role for Rico Gathers, and if I had control globally over the Cowboys organization, I would say to myself, okay, I want this guy on my team. He adds value that certainly these other guys don't. I'm basically going to make him a wide receiver. Now, I'm not going to you know, list him as a wide receiver, but I'm going to employ him strictly in my 11 personnel lineup. I'm going to say, you know, on third downs, and on uh, you know a two-minute drill or up-tempo offense, I'm going to put him out there at 11 personnel as my only tight end. So I'm you know some might call it 10 personnel then, but he's going to be a matchup issue that I can put in a three-by-one off by himself, 
Uh, and, you know, if, if, if they try to put him out there with a linebacker, I'm going to go after that. Or I'm going to put him in the slot on the, you know, on a two-by-two situation. But I'm going to find matchups that work for him, and I'm going to use him essentially as a, a slot-wide receiver and, uh, and, and obviously as a red zone threat. But uh, the Cowboys really haven't been able to figure that out in any way, shape, or form. The guy has not taken an NFL snap yet, guys. So, so you know, <laughs> when we talk about him and we throw around the uh, the names of uh, who he reminds you of and, and, and the fact that these teams are all going to claim him if he's made available, that might be true. But for, you know, for all the talk that we give Mr. Gathers, um, it, it feels like much to do about nothing at this point. And, and you know, the fact that they took Tolton Schultz, so, so remember, Witten retires on draft week. Uh, in fact, he retired the morning of day two. So the, the Cowboys' uh, next two picks were uh, Connor Williams and Michael Gallup, the wide receiver, and then their pick after that was, uh, in fact, Dalton Schultz. Uh, no, excuse me, Dorrance Armstrong, the defensive end, then Dalton Schultz. So they, they knew Witten was gone, and then they took a tight end in the draft. And you would think if they had Rico Gathers in reserve and they already had Swain and Tarwin on the roster – they might have said either, A, we're really great at tight end, we don't need any help, or B, uh, we better take a tight end in round two. But uh, they kind of went middle ground there, and so they have four guys that lead me to believe that uh, there's a good chance, like I said, tight end might be pretty high on their list next April. Not to believe or the Seahawks are part of this, but if you remember 12 months ago, Cassin Williams was the big star of the offseason, of the preseason and the Seahawks released him, and he immediately got picked up by the Browns, but he did nothing. So that might be a similar thing. If you're worried about another team picking up Rico Gathers because you think he's this phenomenal star athlete player, Cassin Williams had exactly the same thing, and he was gone, and he, he's done nothing since. Maybe he becomes a good player this year, but it's not always that simple from what you can tell and what you can see. The other part of that is you talk about using him in a specific role, a slot receiver, a mismatch thing. It feels like, and furthering the Jeff Fisherness of this coaching staff, it feels like Tavon Austin is going to be the guy they do it with that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so they got to figure out like if they're an eleven personnel, are they going to take Cole Beasley off the field, or are they going to put them both out there and not even have a tight end on the field and call it ten personnel with two slot guys who are both? You know, I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what makes Cole Beasley and Tavon Austin uh, is so different from each other that uh, you can employ them uh, both out there at the same time, uh, given that neither has had great success as outside receivers. And then you have Alan Hearns, and then you have, let's say, Michael Gallup or Terrence Williams or somebody like that. So as I look at their offense, uh, you know, on the surface, I say I, 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 have a, I understand what you would do with Beasley. I understand what you do with Austin. I don't understand what you might do with both of them on the field at the same time unless it's going back to the Rams when Gurley needed a rest. They kind of ran Austin as their running back uh, that they could do different things with. But, uh, but I think the Cowboys plan on Ezekiel Elliott playing in about 98% of their snaps. Here's what I would ask you. How is Tavon Austin any different from – actually, it's probably worse – than Dwayne Harris or even Lucky Whitehead. That's like that's got to be the obvious role for him, isn't it? I think so, but that's a very, very limited role aside from re- the return game. And he was taken off the return game with the Rams last year because he fumbled, I think, five of the first 11 punts of the season. And they didn't put him back out there again because, you know, obviously they had yeah. Farrell Cooper. But 
Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> if he's not a return guy, what exactly is he? And, and again, I look at Scott Lenahan and Jason Garrett and say, I'm eager to see what your plans are, but right now I'm having trouble seeing it, partly because uh, they're, they're, they've been pretty predictable over the years, and, and, and maybe you know, skepticism is working against me. Well, I think it's probably a fair skepticism at this point because all of us share it. The, the, the big concern I always had with Jeff Fisher's offense was he used to try and run these misdirection plays with like guys like Austin running a, an end around where they wouldn't give him the ball or they'd give him the ball every so often. And he had probably three or four of those misdirection plays. And the problem was defenses could predict them and anticipate them because he only had three or four of them. And I kind of worry that that's where the Cowboys coaching staff is. Even though they don't do a whole lot of misdirection, it's all kind of... Uh, very bland straight dropbacks but it's not really like it's not Austin obviously but it's not really the coaching staff that makes me a little bit more optimistic about this offense this year I, I think the the offensive line being healthy and adding Connor Williams should help and I, I, I think a big part of their ch- the change this season is going to be just the overall team speed and just how smooth the offense is. So the, the main points here are going to be with Alan Hearns and Michael Gallup, and hopefully Gallup gets on the field ahead of Terrence Williams. Hopefully they don't give that veteran presence thing that they want to do. Maybe there's good reason for it, but Terrence Williams to me is the po- at this point is just too much of a net negative to have on the field ahead of a guy like Gallup who looks good and looks promising coming in. But the, the main thing for me here is you might not have a tight end anymore. You might not have someone who can block. But last year, Jason Witten had reached a point where defenses had no respect for him at all. They would put a safety on him in man coverage at times, and that safety would literally just play him underneath. Washington did it a couple of times, where they would have a defender, their safety, I think it was Jarrett at the time, would just literally shadow him underneath as if he was playing cover two, pushing him towards the safety, but he didn't have a safety over the top. He would, because he knew that Witten was going to run eight or nine yards and then turn around. He didn't, he knew that Witten wasn't going to run away from him, even if he did try and run downfield. And that's a problem in itself, but what that also does is shrinks the rest of the field. And then you put in Des Bryant there, who to me fell off massively last year. Had fallen off a little bit prior prior in the year before. From a point of view of he dropped way too many passes, didn't catch enough passes that he should have, didn't make any real spectacular adjustments that you expect him to make normally, but also from the point of not being able to get off coverage. He like the the kind of the best example of this for me is whenever you press Des at the line and he runs a slant you might have an opportunity to throw it to him, but it's going to be with the defender on his back. He's never going to set, uh, stand up against a decent, anyway decent cornerback, make a move at the line of scrimmage, create a little bit of space and get open inside. And as early as the preseason, you've seen with Gallup that he, maybe the quality of cornerback isn't that great, but I think it was Jimmy Ward in San Francisco who was, who was uh, covering him. The, you could see him set, set the cornerback up and with his stem, with his initial release from the line of scrimmage, make one hard step and then explode inside. And that was something they were lacking last year. Because I think Dak will be very good at getting the ball out to routes like that. When he has receivers like Hearns and Gallup who can actually get open and who can actually run routes. I don't think they had anyone last year who could run a variety of routes and run a variety of routes well. No, and and there wasn't a lot of moving them around. And there wasn't a lot of uh, trying to find ways to uh to to out scheme uh, the 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 opponent and and that's you know i i guess that's why there is a certain pessimism about what can be expected from this year because this team seemed to fall apart of course uh, down the stretch and, and a lot of it coincided with the ezekiel suspension and so forth but for the most part they they never came with another solution they never came with another idea and and you know so so yes they are banking on the fact that uh, with new personnel at a lot of spots 
and obviously a thousand snaps going to Jason Witten and and darn near a thousand going to Des Bryant. It's a it's a it's a whole different you know standpoint of uh, you know who are the key targets out there and who are you uh, you know running. Uh, in these in this scheme and in these routes, so so the personnel has been flipped over. Hearns and Gallup are very intriguing. Tavon Austin, we've talked about that. Maybe Blake Jarwin down the seam. I'm not sure what to expect from that. But then you add to it the the premise that they have uh, they have tried to look around the league and try to find some ideas that they like. And I anticipate that has spent a lot of time with McVeigh's scheme and with uh, Kyle Shanahan and just trying to figure out okay. Why aren't we moving guys around? Why are rub routes, uh, you know, almost a trick play for the Dallas Cowboys? If we need to get guys open and we need to make the life more, uh, you know, decisive and quick for Dak Prescott, well, then what are we waiting for? So uh, there's, there's some belief, some promise that uh, the Cowboys offense will look different this year. Um, but, you know, honestly, when you see their preseason games, a lot of it is built around coming up there with multiple tight ends on first and second down and then kind of doing the exact same, you know, zone, outside zone, inside zone, you know, then you get a little cheap power off the running game, but then it's all built into some play action with, uh, with intermediate routes and, uh, you know, a lot of the same things we've seen. So uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see is this all deception in the preseason and uh, they're really – uh, going to unleash uh, the 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 full powers of this battle station come week one in Carolina, but uh, but like I said, we 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 we've, we've kind of heard a lot of this talk before, so now I think we're banking on the idea that the personnel just make things a bit easier for Jack Prescott because you know I've I, I've written this and I really believe it. There may not be a player in the league under more pressure than Jack Prescott this year, just to the standpoint that you know the two the two routes quite possibly are uh you know if things go very well by this time next year he might have a contract somewhere between Derek Carr 5 for 125 and Jimmy Garoppolo 5 for 137 uh that would be the going rate for a quarterback that should get his uh, extension either next year or soon thereafter because uh 2019 would be his walk year and uh the other direction of course is if if 2018 closely resembles November of last year and Prescott kind of loses a lot of uh, his, his uh, confidence. And, uh, you know, just the, you know, the, the, the passes downfield uh, turn into hopeful heaves rather than the confident guy we saw for his first 24 starts. Is it possible the Cowboys are actually looking at quarterback in the draft next year or, or, uh, you know, looking, looking for options. So, uh, I've covered this team long enough to know I should not rule anything fully out. And I'm a big Dak Prescott believer, but I do admit that uh, he's, he's got to perform at a pretty high level this year to silence his uh, legions of critics. Because I, I do think there are people that believe he's the fourth best quarterback in his division right now. And uh, that, that to me, uh, you know, that's not sustainable for Dallas Cowboys football. I think he's closer to fourth best in the league, but I'm probably the outlier there. Uh, I hope I hope people didn't miss the <laughs> rub routes are almost like trick plays for this offense because that's a perfect description <laughs> of that offense as a whole. Um, I haven't developed myself in this conversation to the point that I forgot you've got to get out of here at some point. So I've got what twenty minutes left with you. Yeah, yeah, that's about that's fine. If that yeah, if that works for you. Well, what what would work for me is another three hours, I think, because I've got so much to talk about <laughs> on this defense. The um. 
All right, so like, let's go with the obvious thing, the thing that everyone's kind of talking about and looking at right now. I tend not to go with the obvious thing, but it's Randy Gregory. And I just, I there were two plays to me uh, in that, in that was it the Cardinals they played this week? Yeah, two plays against the Cardinals this week that really stood out to me. Look, DJ Humphreys isn't a great left tackle. He isn't a great tackle at all. But he's a good athlete and he's strong. And if you, he's got decent footwork. So he's not someone who is Byron Bell up there. He's not a guy who should be very easily beaten over and over and over again, even though he has flaws. But Gregory, you saw him. And you can tell when you watch a guy that he has just never had any issues in terms of playing football. He's a natural pass rusher. And what I mean by that is he's got beautiful footwork and beautiful timing. There was one play last night where he threatened the speed rush outside of Humphreys. And with the, it's, it's a very hard thing to explain without having it in front of you. But at the perfect point in his, uh, in his advanced downfield, he, he shuffled his feet and then got Humphreys off balance and got underneath into his chest and just blew him straight back into the quarterback. And prior to that, he had made a play where he came on onto Humphrey's outside shoulder, pushed him down the field a little bit. The running back came to chip, and he used his left arm. And his left arm was so powerful on this play where he just hit Humphrey's on, on his up, upper shoulder, on his inside shoulder, knocked Humphrey's completely off balance, and then almost at the same time began a spin move to get away from the running back, come back in field, and sack Sam Bradford. And that ended the first drive, I believe, for the Cardinals. And if you have a guy... All right, look, he's got issues. He might not be that consistent. He might, like, only maybe he's only a pass rushing player at this point. We don't really know because he hasn't been on the field. But if you have someone who you can bring onto the field and play like that across from Demarcus Lawrence, that's going to have a huge impact on the whole defense. But you're closer to this than I am. So were these plays kind of once off, things that just stood out? Or has he been back in training camp for however long he's been there in practices? Has he been doing this kind of thing consistently? Has he looked this good consistently? Well, he, he definitely looks good. There's no doubt about that. And he also looked good uh, in 2016 when he played just a couple games. Uh, at the end of the season, I believe, Detroit and Philadelphia in 2016. And he, 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 he definitely has no trouble putting tape out there and snaps where he looks like the uh, extraordinary player that the Cowboys thought he was when they drafted him. So, uh, everyone is optimistic that if Randy Gregory has his personal life in order, and, and you know we can debate the severity of uh, his transgressions, but of course, uh, like Josh Gordon, uh, the league uh, feels like they do about uh, certain things, and therefore, uh, you know, you, you've got to you've got to prove that you can stay eligible to play in this league. Uh, but once he's out here, it sure looks like uh, he's ready to uh, redeem himself, and and uh, you know clearly. As someone who uh, enjoys a good pass rush, uh, we are left to wonder if David Irving was uh, was was still on the reservation, and they could line him up at the three technique, and you know you could you could uh, go Gregory and Lawrence on the outside with uh, with Irving, and, and maybe either Malik Collins or, or maybe Tyrone Proper or something like that on nickel down. So it's just it's, it's four of uh, four top top athletes who can all get to the quarterback pretty well. Uh, that would really be something. Now Irving is gone. And honestly, uh, if you took David Irving's 20 best snaps from last year, you would think this is this guy is an all pro. And I'm not uh, I'm not even being a superlative. Uh, he oh, takes over games. He's he's an unbelievable football player, and yet uh, I believe he's so much trouble that uh, the Cowboys are pretty much at the end of their rope. And, uh, and he, you know, hasn't been with the organization. Uh, he has a four-game suspension to serve. And he could factor back in this year. But, 
you know, that's a guy who probably should have a $10 million a year contract by now if only he was uh, uh, a low-maintenance player. Um, but I think the Cowboys, who seem to attract these guys like a magnet, uh, you know, if, if the Cowboys get tired of you, as, uh, as patient and forgiving as they are for, uh, for players and uh, their organization's history and, and their general manager, of course, uh, being more than willing to, uh, to, to gamble on a player for, for, for the sake of talent, uh, if they've had it with you, then then I think that kind of speaks to things. So so Gregory's in, everyone's optimistic, but now Irving's out, and so it's kind of whack a mole here to try to get all your best players at the same time. And uh, you know, but even as it is, Demarcus Lawrence is broken out. Obviously, I'm I'm a guy who who thinks uh, you know he's far more than a one year wonder, but I know that's been said about him. So they franchised him, and uh, you know he 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 looks like he's right where he was last year. And uh, then to have Gregory on the other side, they, they look and, and even you know Taco Charlton is pretty athletic for a defensive end. I know uh, he was not the most popular uh, pick ever, and in fact I I was uh, far more into T.J. Watt in that draft uh, scheme, whether the scheme fit or not. Uh, certainly on nickel down pass rushes, I would take T.J. Watt's twitchiness over Taco Charlton. But Charlton looks like he's taking a big stride. Lawrence Armstrong looks impressive. Uh, so so they. They definitely know what they're looking for in the defensive front. And if uh, they get their linebackers right, uh, and, you know, if they pull the trigger on an Earl Thomas trade, uh, you could definitely make the case that for once around here, and it's been a long, long time, maybe a decade or so since, uh, since their defense was their more dominant unit on the field. But I think we're pretty close to that right now. I think we could go into great detail on the cornerbacks and the safeties because that is a fascinating part of this defense as well. But uh, the big story really from this preseason, from this training camp for the Cowboys has been Jalen Smith. And I remember uh, over probably the first week into camp, probably the first practice or two, where he had that play running down the seam with Cole Beasley. And I'm always wary of these things because you don't know if a guy has lost a step in the offseason or you don't know, you you get to play from a terrible angle. But basically what that play was, was Jalen Smith running with Cole Beasley, uh, looked about 40 yards down the field after he'd started from the middle and Beasley was running a vertical route from the slot, something he doesn't normally do. But that play was kind of startling because Jalen Smith to this point, well, I think if you don't know Jalen Smith, if you don't know him well enough or if you don't know him at all, he was at Notre Dame and he was the best player in his draft as far as I'm concerned. He was this phenomenal athlete who... There were times when it felt like I was watching Patrick Willis or someone like Khalil Mack because of the way he also blitzed as well, where he came off the edge just like a monster. Yeah. He would blow guys out of his way. And he had this unbelievable ability to close on people in space. But then he had this horrific knee injury and the Cowboys took a risk on drafting him at the top of the second round. And they got him back on the field. Obviously, that was a big positive for them. But they did not get anything close to the guy who was at Notre Dame for obvious reasons. You go through that sort of a knee injury, it's going to limit you. But it felt like when he was on the field and there were times when he wasn't getting on the field, it felt like he was a net negative for them. Whereas you've yeah. watched him a couple of times in, in practice or a couple of times in games and he's flashing these plays of athleticism where he looks like that difference maker, that Navarro Bowman level range, that Luke Cookley, that like Bobby Wagner. Obviously, he's got a long way to go to be these guys. But this preseason and this hype train that's kind of starting to pull out of the station... Is this something we should be getting on, or have you got more reservations than optimism about him? Well, I, you know, first of all, I, I, I really uh, like the player, and I think his mentality is great. I think his uh, his morale is uh, impressive, and 
so he's a gifted, gifted player. Um, I do want to say that uh, I, I think a lot of people got carried away with his season last year from an optimistic standpoint based on the overall promise that he played in every game, and he did. And that was a huge accomplishment for a guy coming off that injury yeah. that he played in every game. But but I was, uh, I was far more um, down on the fact that when he was out there, especially when Sean Lee was injured, which, uh, you know, is a periodic thing around here, um, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that Jalen Smith – was attacked. Uh, Sean McVay definitely attacked him uh, in week four against the Rams. Uh, Aaron Rodgers definitely attacked him uh, in, in week five. And, and both those games are pivotal, pivotal games where, you know, the Cowboys at the time, I believe uh, Lee was out and Anthony Hitchens was just coming back from his injury. So the Cowboys were really, really short at linebacker. And that's not Jalen's fault, but now they were playing him in every situation and uh, trying for basically for him to replace Sean Lee, which was crazy because, in my opinion, I would have brought Jalen Smith as one of those uh, IR designated to return at midseason because what's the rush to get him back on the field? Let's make sure he's right as opposed to overexposed and, uh, you know, the damage that could do to even his morale. But they, you know, in their Cowboys way, were short at linebacker, and so they got a couple people hurt, and instantly they went from let's bring Jalen along slowly to let's play Jalen every single snap of every single situation, which was crazy. Um, so, so the more he played, the more opposing coaches put him in spots where uh, he was not best suited, and 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 that turned into a bit of a disaster at times. Uh, but most of it was predicated on Sean Lee being injured. When Sean Lee was brought back in December, and suddenly they had Anthony Hitchens, who has now signed a nice deal to go to Kansas City, uh, Sean Lee and Jalen Smith available, now Jalen played about 25 snaps a game instead of 60. And they were able to tailor a, a, a package for him in early downs and uh, for zone coverages where they played into his strengths, not his weaknesses. Uh, so, so as we head into this year, first of all, it's been another nine months of healing. And so the idea that the nerves could reattach and that his drop foot uh, situation was going to improve and then just the, uh, the rehabilitation of an athlete, all gets better with time. Um, sometimes it never fully comes back, but it's always going to be better after two years than it is after one year. So this is, this is uh, basic common sense, I believe. And so, you know, now we're seeing really promising things. What I saw last year, his biggest issues were twofold. One, they, he, he was really not a candidate for man coverage um, just because, you know, in those situations, unlike in zones, you're not taking a predetermined drop and covering an area. You are basically at the mercy of a player's hips. And uh, wherever he goes, you follow. And then sometimes, you know, if you're having nerve problems in your leg, your reaction time is just not going to be as easy. And then related to it would be the second issue, which is just any time he had to respond to something he wasn't anticipating, you could see that that one leg took a little longer to fire than the other. So I, I wrote a piece for the Athletic back in, oh, I think early April, when the rumbling started getting pretty loud that uh, they were going to uh, probably get, get late Vanderash in the first round. Um, I wanted to kind of discuss, well, wait a minute. If the, if the Cowboys are in nickel in 71% of the time, that means they only have two linebackers on the field for about 700 snaps. And if Jalen Smith and Sean Lee are healthy, 
what are you drafting a linebacker in the first round for? That makes no sense to me. So I was trying to figure that out, and, and, and clearly, you know, probably was an insurance policy in, in case Jalen did response policy because Sean Lee is over the age of 30. I don't know if I'm the Cowboys, uh, especially when I'm talking about I need Earl Thomas uh, or, or players at other positions. I don't know that I'm taking a linebacker insurance policy in round one if I really don't have a place for him to play and if both of those guys are right for the next couple of years. But that's what they decided to do. And, uh, you know, <laughs> people that, that saw Derwin James over the weekend were probably saying, Hey, couldn't that guy have just plugged right in and started right away? But, uh, you know, so so I do think Jalen is better. Um, I also think that when I see him out there in all situations and in all coverages and the Cowboys take all restrictions off him and the opposing coaches are no longer attacking him, then I will be sure that he's back because when you're at training camp practices, those guys are uh, – you know, it's just not the same as when Todd Gurley is trying to get you out in space. So, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic of Jalen, but I'm, I'm also, you know, there's something in the back of my head that's working uh, in, in the regular season before we, we throw any parties. So you touched on something there that you, you kind of jumped to my next question, and it's probably less of a question, more of a more of a statement, I guess. So. One of the things that I talk about quite a bit, and it's, it's something that gets a, a very negative reaction, and I don't really understand it. It's probably just because I'm criticizing draft picks, and at the draft, when you criticize anything at the draft, everyone kind of re- recoils because they all think every draft pick their team makes is going to turn out great and looks at the most positive outlook for it. But I was infuriated, well, in, as much as infuriated as you can get about a pick that isn't part of your team, just infuriated at the logic of them drafting Jalen Smith. Because even though they were picking high in that draft because of the Romo injury, or because, of, or because they had that down here, you knew that this team was going to be contending and you knew this team was set up for short-term uh, competition. It wasn't this team that was rebuilding. So when you took Jalen Smith, you were kind of, you were getting no impact from a high rookie pick. Like, you don't have to get a rookie straight away and have him starting for him to have a, a quality contribution. Like, I remember the 49ers took Alden Smith in the top 10. I think it was seventh overall. And he became the situational pass rusher for his first year. And he more than paid his back his value in that first year alone, just without even being a full, full-time starter. You're not going to get Alden Smith all the time, but you can get guys who contribute. So my thought is always that there are teams at draft time who should be looking at the short term, who should be trying to maximize their next two to three year window, or even even shorter than that, their next one to two year window. And there are teams who should be taking guys like Jalen Smith for the long term, who they can wait for, who they can develop the rest of the roster around, who they're not going to have any worries with. And you've kind of already talked about this, where Leighton van der Esch did not make any sense to me as a draft pick. Now, part of this might be that I did not think he was anything of a special player. I thought the other, like, I wasn't a big Roquan Smith guy. I'm very much open to that one. But I, I, actually, funnily enough, you, you might be somewhat similar because I think size and strength is a big issue for him. But if you look at Tremaine Edmonds, I can understand exactly why you take him in the first round. Got that athleticism, he flashes. You look at Rashawn Evans, the guy who went, wound up in Tennessee. I think he's going to be a really good player. I think Leighton Van Der Esch is just going to be another NFL player. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe I'm right on that. Whatever. That doesn't really matter. But for the short term, he is, has no route to the field without someone else getting hurt. If you put that team on paper, you have not upgraded your team one bit by taking this guy in the first round. 
And like you explained, like he's not going to be on the field in nickel. And is he even going to be on the field as a strong side linebacker when they when they're in a base four three? Like because Damian Wilson apparently has played quite well. Maybe maybe I'm hearing wrong on that. But I haven't watched him myself personally. But it just the whole idea of it seems to lack the big picture focus it seems to be oh we like this linebacker let's take this linebacker and then they turn around and look at the roster and they go hey we've already got two linebackers playing and we play nickel 70 percent of the time that just it seems to lack lack direction no it, it does it does and and you know if if you want to know the uh, in 20 years of following uh, the dallas cowboys uh what all roads lead back to is uh, the fact that uh, at times uh, pinning Jerry Jones down on on his actual football philosophies, and I, I realize Will McClay and Stephen Jones are making more and more of the decisions all the time. But but uh, if, if you want to just say uh, there's there's no real global philosophy that is followed for years and years at a time, uh, you you could uh, definitely make a real case. Uh, you know, they, they, like I said earlier, they they are trying to transform into being a homegrown. Uh, you know, talent uh, type organization, and that's great. But some years they uh, they they just want team captains and great leaders and players like that. And then other years they're drafting Randy Gregory and signing Greg Hardy in the same offseason. So they're telling us that character and and sometimes behavior is not a real important issue to them. And so you know, yeah, the 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 drafting of Jalen Smith, of course, uh, was 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 going in one direction that says, okay, we may have to redshirt him. But uh, then this spot's going to be fine. Uh, but but what I feel like this draft often is, um, and you know, you can go back to to Jerry wanting Johnny Manziel over Zach Martin, or you could go back to uh, when the, you know the year they took uh, Zach Prescott. Uh, the uh, Peter King was in the draft room, and uh, he knows that uh, they were trying to trade for Paxton Lynch and. And uh, they wanted Connor Cook and just all these things when they fell out of Dak Prescott. So there's, there's a number of stories in Cowboys lore that Jerry Jones never says no to stories. And so uh, all of his thoughts get, uh, get printed and recorded, and uh, maybe other general managers or owners are smart enough not to do so many interviews so we find out what they're thinking about every single thing. But um, I think, and I think there's a real basis for uh, proof for this, that the Cowboys saw last November, the Atlanta game followed by the Eagles game followed by the Chargers game on Thanksgiving Day. They lost those three games by a combined score of 92 to 22. I mean, imagine that in the NFL. Uh, they lost by 70 points over three games. They never eclipsed the 10-point barrier in any of those three games. And so I think what they saw was that they were exposed by – Offensive line, lack of depth, and linebacker, lack of depth. And so what they did, of course, is they go into free agency of the draft and uh, they, they go get duct tape and, uh, and uh, you know, tons of reinforcements over those two spots. And that's why they talked themselves into, you know, Sean Lee gets hurt on a somewhat regular basis and uh, he's getting older. We, maybe we need to have some Sean Lee, Jalen Smith insurance in the first round. And then in the second round, we need some more offensive line insurance, so let's take Connor Williams. Now, those may all turn out to be great picks, but I uh, share your reservations about Leighton Vander Esch, partly because I did not see a road to the field for him, and partly because I think his body of work at the college level 
was was a, left me a little bit wanting, and it made me uh, wonder if they were drafting a, a linebacker who has Brian Urlacher size, but not necessarily anywhere close to Brian Urlacher uh, physicality. And, and so I, I don't necessarily know how that fits so much so that I, when I ranked, uh, you know, 60 players for the draft, I ranked Van Der Esch below Connor Williams, their second round pick, and Michael Gallup, their third round pick. I like yeah. both of those players more than Van Der Esch. So, so I, you know, look, the Cowboys have been pretty good at drafting, especially first round for the last several years. So they deserve, you know, some benefit of the doubt. But, uh, but I, I was uh, quite skeptical of uh, the motivation and, and even the execution of taking Leighton Van Der Esch. But uh, they love him. Um, we'll see how much of a role they can possibly have until Sean Lee uh, shuts shuts it down for his career. But who knows when that's going to be? I guess I'm with you on Gallup because I remember like the, one of the big frustrations of them taking Leighton Van Der Esch in the first round was they desperately needed a wide receiver, desperately needed to add something to the offense, even if it was a tight end rather a wide receiver. You could have had Gasecki or the guy who wound up in Philadelphia maybe not in the first round you could but you didn't have to spend that pick on a linebacker but the the idea of them getting Gallup in the third to me was phenomenal value and he's looked pretty good so far all I could think about when you were talking about the Cowboys draft philosophy and the idea of Manziel and Randy Gregory and kind of that not fitting into what their plan normally is or what their plan often is is when you go you know when you go to the supermarket and you go to you get all what you need all the stuff you actually need to put in the fridge and the presses and then you get up to the to the, the to the checkout. They have all of like the chocolate and all of the the crisps and all or all of the potato chips. I've got to say for Americans, I guess, and all the candy they have all there. It feels like the cowboys get caught yeah. in that trap when they're walking up the door and they realize, oh wait, we can get this stuff and throw that in as well. So maybe there's a little element of just the little lack of self control there when it comes to certain guys. Well, you know, I, I often wonder, uh, and this this is a great experiment because when you're in a NFL market you do get a little bit my, myopic with regards to uh, you, you, the way a franchise is run and, and just you're wondering is that is like this. And even the, the pre-draft press conference that uh, the, the Stephen and Jerry Jones do every year uh, and the fact that most of us in the Dallas media are pretty sure who they're taking in the first round before mm-hmm. the draft even starts, uh, <laughs> there is reason to believe that uh, they do fall in love with one or two particular guys. Zach Martin, everyone in the world knew they were taking Zach Martin. The year they took Byron Jones, everyone in Dallas knew they were probably taking Byron Jones. And then uh, Ezekiel Elliott was the worst-kept secret of all time, that if he got there, they're so loud and obvious about who they plan on taking. And that goes for Van Der Esch this year that you often wonder, are they, are they laying the most uh, elaborate trap uh, for, for anyone listening in, and then you're like, no, they actually did say that uh, they love Vanderesh so much. Well, they're not always broadcasting it. Often it's sources tell us, but the sources are all the same people from year to year, and they're never lying. They're they're always telling the truth on what their intentions are. So in one respect, you really uh, value the honesty and the accuracy of your sources. And on the other hand, you want to shake them and say, why are you guys telling the public this? It, uh, it, it seems like uh, exactly the opposite of how you're supposed to play the draft game. They're laying the trap and falling into it themselves by the sounds of it. So let, let's, I'll get you out of here on this one very last thing. You can, it doesn't have to be a long answer. It doesn't have to be an in-depth answer. Just how concerned are you about the secondary? Is there kind of one thing that you're going to be watching and that will have a big impact on the rest of the unit? Or is this simply a matter of you're hoping all these different kind of 
I, I don't know if misfit piece is the right word, but guys who aren't established, who aren't like who aren't Jeff Heath is obviously there, but guys who aren't like proven NFL players necessarily that you're hoping they all come together and just form a, a competent unit behind what you hope is a strong front seven. Well, I think I, I think a secondary looks better when you have a uh, a pass rush, and I think the Cowboys have their best pass rush uh, in years since Wade Phillips. I think they should be able to trouble most uh, passers on a semi-regular basis. So, I think great effect on their on their secondary. I do think they have uh, some some real quality corner. I think uh, Chidobe Awuzie is is one of the uh, better young corners in the league. Um, I'm a little less bullish on Byron Jones, but I do think that uh, out there on the edge, there's a chance as a big corner, as a Seattle prototype, if you will, that uh, that might make than safety where he had a little bit of trouble uh, necessarily reading what was in front of him and not falling for deception and so forth. So I like the corners. I like uh, the slot with the, with, with Anthony Brown and with uh, Jordan Lewis. They're in pretty good shape. They have good depth and they have good talent. That's great. The question, of course, is safety. And if you follow this organization as long as I have, there was a time a long, long time ago, I want to say 2002, he drafted Roy Williams from Oklahoma to play safety for them next to Aaron Woodson. And, uh, you know, Roy Williams was, I believe, uh, pick number six of the first round. And it was a it was a great, great acquisition. And he had one of the best rookie seasons of any Cowboy draft pick ever. And uh, standing next to Aaron Woodson, the Cowboys were uh, two great safeties. And then, unfortunately, Williams either got bigger or less flexible or whatever, within three years of his career, he started to become a target. And uh, basically, uh, opposing quarterbacks would look for him downfield and try to find it out of 2008 or so, or at least out of the Cowboys by 2008 or so. And it just it went downhill fast. I tell you all that, the Dallas uh, did almost nothing in safety. Almost nothing. So they, they drafted Roy Williams very, very high. It didn't work. And so for the most part in the last 15 years, they have pretty much anyone back there at safety that they could think of. And uh, anybody, any converted corner, any waiver wire pickup, anybody that they could just grab. And, you know, once in a while they might a Ken Hamlet or something like that. But for the most part, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty much a one guy to be replaced by another guy year after year after year. And so this year they – they, they go get Chris Richard from Seattle to basically coordinate their defense, even though they still call Rod Marinelli the defense coordinator. I believe it's pretty much Chris Richard, and I think they're anticipating Marinelli will retire before too long. And that's great. I love the scheme. I love the disposition for that. I love everything about Chris Richard, and I'm happy the Cowboys were able to acquire him. The question is, what do you think of safety? And this is, you know, not to bring it all back to Earl Thomas, but I do think there's still a pretty good chance they pull the trigger on that around Labor Day or so forth. Uh, but in the meantime, Xavier Woods has been pretty much the unchallenged holder of the free safety position, which, you know, he's a sixth-round pick from last year's draft. He's a talented kid. I uh, think very highly of him. I just don't know that you just hand him the position and act like everything's going to be great. And I do think that position holds a ton of leverage in the scheme because uh, part of uh, playing cover three is to get that strong safety, Jeff Heath, into the box to plug up the run and to force you into uh, passing situations on third, third and long. So 
<laughs> Xavier Woods, of course, pulled his hamstring against the Bengals in preseason game two, and so his return is uh, very questionable for opening day and so forth. And, uh, and, and so as you ask about the secondary, I know that's a long answer, but I would feel good about a lot of it. I would feel great about it if Earl Thomas was back there. <laughs> if, it's, if it's Xavier Woods with a gimpy hamstring, it just feels like uh, they're, they're one massive piece short of having what they need back there. The corners are fine, but who's playing center field? Who's playing the racer when a corner gets beat like Earl Thomas does in that scheme? Because let me tell you, if it was just the scheme, if it was just the X's and O's, uh, everybody would run that scheme. It's not. It's the players who can run a real attacking defense, a weapon. And I just don't know that uh, the Cowboys have fortified themselves at free safety uh, enough to say that uh, it's going to work great. So uh, that's that's another wait and see, and a season of wait and see, I guess, with this 2018 Cowboys squad. I think the uh, best case scenario from recent times, if you're talking about Xavier Woods rather than Earl Thomas, is Ricardo Allen in Atlanta, who was this low-ranked, low-drafted player who I think came out as a cornerback and transitioned, and he became the free safety in Dan Quinn's defense. Dan Quinn, also part of that Seattle coaching tree, and he is actually he's pretty much thrived in Atlanta. He's not. Hasn't been, he hasn't been Earl Thomas, he hasn't been Devin McCourty, he's not Harrison Smith, but he's a good quality starting free safety who can cover that ground, which not many, not many safeties can do consistently. So, like you say, Xavier Woods is going into this situation where it's not just, hey, be a good starting safety in, in the NFL, it's be, hey, you're going to have the toughest job of any safety in the league because this is what we're going to do over and over and over again, where you're going to have to play in this amount of space all the time, which... Generally, I find like that's something we can get into in more detail later at some, at some other point, maybe on another podcast, but I find defense is largely about how you chop up the space. If you're not playing uh, aggressive man coverage or if you're not doing different things in the front seven, more creative things in the front seven, it's all about being able to chop up that space into smaller sections for each of your defensive backs. And that's the value with Earl Thomas and that cover tree where you get these... You, or Thomas covers the, the middle, the heavy middle. You've got the two cornerbacks outside, and then you, that allows you to put the rest of your coverage guys underneath, so you're not getting linebackers isolated in a vast amount of space. Like Bobby Wagner uh, and the, the, the Seahawks Panthers game this last week, Bobby Wagner tried to cover Christian McCaffrey one on one when everyone else was playing man, so everything cleared out from the underneath. Wagner was there trying to run with McCaffrey. McCaffrey just gave him one shake to the left, took off sprinting to the right, and Wagner had no chance because, of course, he has no chance. How is he ever going to keep up with someone like that in that amount of space? Whereas if he's just playing a zone and it's all, it's a tight it's a tight zone where he he's got clo- players relatively close to him, it's a lot easier for him to cover that ground and shut down plays in the passing, shut down passing lanes and read the quarterback's eyes and just drop into different levels of space. And it's just like everything you say about getting Earl Thomas, it just seems so obvious from the outside looking in. Maybe the Seahawks are holding out for something way too big, but that doesn't really sound like it. We're not hearing reports of anything like that so i tend to agree with you get earl thomas on that team and it'll be really really interesting without him probably question marks the so yeah oh i was just gonna say on top of that i would i would argue that uh he's not the guy that's going to require just a whole lot of acclimation time i'm not saying you trade for him on sunday morning or the sunday scheme it's coach the schemes so so i imagine they're not necessarily up against it with regards to uh, preparation. He knows what he's doing the second you uh, make the trade. The thing I point out is that whole list of safeties you made, uh, I might be missing somebody, but uh, I think you just listed a bunch of first-round safeties. And and so as you look at Xavier Woods, 
uh, and you compare him to Harrison Smith, or you compare him to McCordy, or you compare him to you know Eric Berry, or any of the the top safeties in the NFL. Most of them are found in the first round. Now there is a Cam Chancellor here and there, but uh, boy, when you and you start saying, man, where did we get this guy? Oh, first round. Oh, first round. So the idea that Xavier Woods, as talented as he is, is just going to roll out there as a sixth round, almost a 200 pick, and just pick it up his first time as an NFL starter and go play that high leverage spot in the defense. That just that, that really feels like a Hail Mary to me. The thing about safety is because of the way the rules are now, because of the way passing games are designed now because of how often you pass the ball it's become a very different position and it's an extremely difficult position and I think that's why you get the guys who are very clearly great prospects at the top and you bring them in and they're and like you talked about earlier Darwin James is one of them to me I thought he was a phenomenal player I thought he's the kind of guy who should have gone in the top 10 or the top 5 of that draft even maybe you don't spend that in a defensive back but to me, he was a guy who you could just see straight away he's going to be a star at safety. And that's probably the same thing he would have said about Earl, about uh, Harrison Smith. Not really about Devin McCourty because he started out at cornerback and wasn't great at cornerback and then moved to safety and became yeah. an all-pro. But it's still that talent level, that talent level of that athleticism and that intelligence. You, you mentioned Earl wouldn't need to adjust that much. The scheme helps, but also this guy is pretty widely and regularly celebrated as being one of the smartest players in the league. So it's not like yeah. you're going to throw him in and he's got to figure a bunch of stuff out. And he's, what, 28, 29, I'm guessing, probably around that 20, age? 29, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like he's, he's been around the league. He's, he's been in the same defense forever, but he's been around the league long enough. He's seen enough situations. He's seen enough teams. He'll know everyone he's facing. He's not going to have any issues. Like That's probably why we're still talking about this with a week to go to the start of the season. Whereas if it was someone else, a lower level, you'd probably say, no, they need to have been in camp for the last couple of weeks at least. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and you know, they they might uh, be committed to stay forward with the kids. But, you know, I think I think one of the biggest storylines that, that no one wants to talk about because safety depth is not terribly interesting uh, on the front page of the, the newspaper. But but I, I, I do think if, if Xavier Woods is already hurt, uh, which he is, and uh, his status is undetermined, now who are you starting at free safety? Well, your best option is probably Jeff Heath. So you're, now you're taking your strong safety and you're putting them back there at free safety. And uh, so who's going to start at strong safety? Well, that was going to be Kevon Frazier, but every night he separated his shoulder. So so now they're, they're signing guys off the street that might go right in to be starters. So not only did they not, uh, you know, go get the veteran, but they, they're really, really thin there. And, and another fun part of Cowboys history or uh, lore, if you will, would be the fact that last year when they were eliminated from the playoffs, uh, when most of us thought, you know what, you should probably sit most of your guys for Week 17 at Philadelphia. The Cowboys, of course, Jason Garrett wanted to win that game with all their minds. They say they had another division win and a winning season. And so by beating the Eagles 6 nothing, uh with, uh, I guess, a uh, Nate Sunfeld start, but the Cowboys played Prescott and seat the whole game. They won 6 nothing, secured a winning record. He also dropped three spots in the draft from 16 to 19 <laughs> that day. And, of course, that's the difference between Derwin James and Lake Vanderesh. But, uh, you know, I suppose every team could do that. But that one seemed particularly uh, particularly hurtful on draft three times. I don't know. I, I find it hard. I, I understand the idea there. And logically, 
I should think that way based on the way I think about most things but I also kind of look at these games and think these guys have played for 16 weeks let them get another win even if it's an ugly awful win against Eagles backups but eh, it's it's kind of one of these things you're not gonna you're not gonna sink your whole franchise from three picks in the in each round of the draft from one draft if you're making smart decisions right. outside of that you'll be fine but what about um yep. I, I think you're you're picking up your son there is he a free safety from football or is he what, what position have we got I'm sorry. What, what one more time? I, I, I didn't I, hear you right there. I said you're you're picking up your son right now. He might be a, a, a Cowboys free safety coming oh. forward. Are or, or we getting a, a lineman or what have we got? Oh, he, he, so he has my athleticism. So they stuck him at defensive line. So far. I, thought, I, thought uh, you, I thought you were going to say punter. <laughs> and, 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 and trust me, my athleticism does not remind anyone of Randy Gregory. So. Uh, <laughs> I might move in the nose tackle before too long. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Bob, this was this was brilliant as 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 I expected, of course. And thank you for staying for whoa, it's an hour and forty. <laughs> so what what have you got coming up in the Athletic? Because I assume we uh, I assume they're keeping you busy over there since they're trying to take over the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, you know the, the, the series has been going, and we'll we'll of course. Uh, uh, continue on. I wrote a piece today about uh, the third, second, and third quarterback spot with the Cowboys, which I imagine uh, if, if if people listening to this can name them, they are big, big Cowboys fans. But uh, uh, fifth round pick Mike White over Cooper Rush uh, was uh, my my thoughts. I think I did run run in a situation, and we'll just keep uh, plucking away. But September 9th is, is right here, and uh, that first game was Carolina. Looks like two teams. Uh, that the defense should have an advantage over the opposition's offense. So I'll maybe take the under in that game. And if you're not a Cowboys fan and you've listened to all of this pod, you've got an idea of Bob's thought process and the way he breaks things down. So that should probably attract you, even if you're not a Cowboys fan, because to me, I will still follow someone who's covering any team. I don't care as long as you're producing quality content, and you obviously are. Uh, that's sports sturm thank on, you that's sports sturm on twitter very german not swedish sturm so you have to say it like sturm <laughs> but don't put a h in yes, it sir. so <laughs> thanks bob this was this yes, was brilliant sir. man this was brilliant well thank you no dude it's always it's always first of all it's great reading your stuff and following you and uh i'm, I'm honored to be invited so thanks for having me again we'll get you back at some point and what maybe when the cowboys have either tanked their season or actually making the playoffs there you go. Lucky. Or actually, if Earl Thomas gets traded, we're just going to have a six-hour conversation about free safety play. <laughs>